0: Welcome. You're listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in Downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Well, good morning, church. What what a joy and what a privilege it is to be in the Lord's house this morning. Seeing them little kids reminds me that out of the mouth of babies and infants, God has prepared praise. I I do pray that y'all have gotten the opportunity to remember what this Christmas season is all about, knowing it's all about Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us. My name is AJ Robbins. I've been a member here at Island Community Church since since 2020. It's been one of the greatest blessings of my life. And I'm also, I have the privilege of being in our pastor's training cohort as we get called to grow in our character and in our competency as we seek to be part of the leadership of God's church. And I'm also thankful for you all as a church and our leadership for the great, and really weighty honor that it is to teach God's word on a Sunday morning. You know, and I knew I didn't have Jordan's beard of wisdom. I knew I didn't have John's vocabulary, despite this being my first and only language. But, but what I didn't know, I, I didn't know I was missing the cuteness factor, like those little guys up there. This, this Christmas, we've been in our series called Out of Darkness, and it's really been a unique set of character studies, if you will, and we've looked at how the good news of Jesus, it draws us out of the darkness that we so often experience in this broken world. To, to open this up, Jordan helped us to realize that the good news of Jesus coming at Christmas, it leads us out of the darkness of silence and into the light of God's presence. If you remember God's people, the nation of Israel, they were promised and prophesied of a Messiah, a chosen one who would come. And for around 400 years, there was nothing but silence, no new prophecies or words from the Lord, no clear coming of the promised one, no overthrow of their enemy, but they were left with silence. But that long awaited day did come, Christmas Day, as God gives us the gift of his only son, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. And he brings us out of the darkness of silence and into the light of his presence. And last week, John led us to the point that Jesus brings us out of the darkness of disbelief and of doubt and into the light of joy and of hope. And we went through the scriptures and we studied Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, we in the church can often be like Zechariah, tempted to elevate our current circumstances or our current difficulties or the barrenness that we feel over the power of God. But there's good news that God graciously moves towards us and forgives us of our doubting in our hearts and moves us out of those barren places of unbelief towards lives of hope and of joy. And I've truly prayed, church, this week in my own time that these texts wouldn't feel too familiar to us. You know, this morning we think of traditional Christmas texts of Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that's, that's what we'll be in. And our minds and our hearts may know details of the narrative like we know details of our favorite movie, but what I'm fearful of is oftentimes we'll stop short of letting God's Word intentionally move deeper and deeper into our hearts. But God has something for us. We know that his word is living and active and it's able to hit us in fresh ways. So whether we're seeing the story for the first time or maybe the hundredth time, God has something for us. And today's sermon topic, it's something that's deeply personal for all of us without exception. And is tremendously impactful for both those who are Christians and those who might not yet be Christians. And I truly believe, church, this morning could be life-changing because of what God's word has to say to us. So let's pray to the end now. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How wonderful are your deeds and how precious are your thoughts to us, Lord. How vast is the sum of them. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being in your presence this morning and the honor of being here in your house of worship. Thank you, Father, for the great gift, which is your word. And thank you that you have, chosen to and chosen to speak to us so plainly and so clearly. So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us fresh ears, fresh eyes, fresh hearts that are tender and vulnerable to what you have to say, Father. So would you forgive us of any iniquities that would hinder our listening now? Oh God, and I pray for myself, Father, that you would hide me behind your word, Lord, for the privilege that I would decrease as you increase. May I make much of you and rightly divide your word now. And I trust that you are with me and with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today, church, we'll see from the text that the good news of Christmas, it brings us out of the darkness of shame and into the light of grace. And said as a main point, Christ's finished work brings us, brings his people out of the darkness of shame and into the light of his grace. Jesus' finished work, what he's done, brings us out of the darkness of shame and into the light of grace. Our first text this morning comes from God's word in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 34. I'd I'd love to give you all a moment to flip there in your Bibles. I'd love for you all to see it with me. Uh, It'll be on the screen here if not. But what we see in Luke chapter 1, it's really the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. And what we're going to look at this morning is Mary's thought process and really the reaction to the angel Gabriel and the news that he has for her and really unpack that in the context of her time and her situation. I'll read from God's Word, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 34. It reads this way. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, So here from our text this morning, we see the angel Gabriel approach a young lady named Mary, who's in Nazareth. And the text clearly tells us twice, actually, that this girl Mary is a virgin, and she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now that word betrothed is a little interesting and perhaps unfamiliar to our more modern ideas of engagement and married. I think I called Aaron my betrothed while we were engaged, and I didn't really know what I was saying, but I still used it. But, but do recall, just for, just for our understanding, that Joseph and Mary are Israelites, so they're Jewish both in their heritage and in their faith, so they're in a culturally Jewish context. So that means their social circles, their courtship, their eventual marriage and the consummation of such would fall under Jewish law that's given in the Old Testament and also the norms and the expectations of the Jewish folks that they spend their time with. You know, For me, the cultural norm I'm used to is northeast Tennessee, Them Appalachian mountain folk that are missing front teeth and such. And I got married six months ago today, actually. And the cultural norm for a wedding venue in East Tennessee, do y'all know what it is? It's a barn. Y'all want to know what I got married in? A barn. You see? So that's my context. It's different for city slickers, for country folks, for different ethnicities. You get it. But but in Jewish law and culture, betrothal meant much, much more than what engagement typically means to our Western culture. And when betrothal is complete between a Jewish man and a Jewish woman, they're actually legally and religiously bound together at that point. And at that point, their, their relationship could only be terminated through the legal and religious processes of divorce. So it's a lot more definite than what we typically see as more than just a ring on a finger and a promise to have a wedding. However, the cohabitation and certainly the consummation of the marriage would not occur until after a full and proper wedding ceremony. So this is the context that we're reading from in, about Joseph and Mary's relationship. And it helps us to understand and really set the scene for why Mary responds in the way that she does. Look back at the text. Verse 29 told us that Mary was greatly troubled at the saying. and She began to try to discern what it would mean. And we would wonder, well... Why would she be so troubled? Isn't it a good thing to bear a son who is the Christ and have all these great things about his kingdom? But remember the context and consider just how impactful this news would have been in a shame and honor culture of their time. Having a child out of wedlock in a Jewish society would potentially mean, mean losing everything and everyone that Mary valued. And as Mary processed that news, real fear and a real threat of shame must have entered her mind as She considered the risk of gossip, slander, disappointment, social ruin, not only of herself, but also her family name. And you could imagine the the insults of the name-calling that would be hurled her direction, those disapproving gestures and wagging at her as people walked by. And the, the accusation of adultery, which society would suspect she would be guilty of, is a transgression punishable by public death. We also see this thread of shame from the gospel account in Matthew chapter 1, from verses 18 and 19, that also discuss the arrival of Christ. They read this way. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So our text says in verse 19 that Joseph is a just man. Just meaning first he would know he would have to deal with the situation in what was apparently adultery with another man at his initial understanding. He would have to deal with it according to the Torah. He was also just in the sense that he had compassion on Mary for if this was the case, he would dismiss her in a way that would minimize the deep shame that would certainly come her way. And if we read this too quickly, church, or with careless hearts, we can often overlook this aspect of the Christmas story. And even recall last week when John spoke of Elizabeth. In this context, fertility and childbearing within marriage were signs of great favor and honor and blessing from the Lord. Yet deviations from what was normal brought on great shame. In Elizabeth's context, it was barrenness, not able to have a child. But in Mary's, the threat of having a child out of wedlock And as a matter of fact, many theologians even see a connection between Mary's visit to Elizabeth for the first three months of her pregnancy to be connected with a great threat of shame and her seeking to find refuge there with her. But what we do see as we read on is God delivering Mary out of the presence and the threat of shame, both social and religious shame. But Mary's feelings, church, in her mindset is probably not as unique as we would think. And I believe we're more like her, becoming greatly troubled when the Lord approaches us than we'd like to admit. There's a reality that shame is universal to our broken human experience. All of us experience it. A little participation here. Has anyone ever felt shame? Okay, those who didn't raise their hand, you should feel shame because you just lied to me. <laughs> hey, they say with good preaching, you cast a wide net, you get everybody involved. So I think I've done that one. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But we even see this aspect of shame uh, acknowledged in our secular world. And I think of, it's a huge topic of study, even in mental health. The American Psychological Association defines shame in this way. They say shame is this, if you flip to that next slide for me. Shame is this, a highly unpleasant, self-conscious emotion arising from the sense of something being dishonorable, immodest, indecorous. I had to Google that. It means like bad indecorous in one's own conduct or circumstances it is typically characterized by withdrawal from social intercourse for example by hiding or distracting the attention of another from one's shameful action and it can have profound effect on psychological adjustment and in interpersonal relationships so even the world says it's profoundly impactful and shame is pervasive in our human psyche And it can have great power over the way that we view ourselves and have self-esteem, over the way we view ourselves in relationship to others around us, and certainly and most importantly can have great effect on the way that we view ourselves in relation to God. And there's many obvious examples of behaviors that reflect a shame-based mindset, and I don't think it's something that has to be taught. Now, I don't have any children of my own, but I do, I volunteer or serve in our children's ministry, and I think parents will identify with what I'm about to say. I'll see a little kid doing something he knows he ain't supposed to be doing, and all I got to do, I just got to say his name, and his body instantly curls up, his body language changes, he might pout, because in that moment, he experiences some degree of shame, because he knows he's been caught. Now, don't think I'm back there shaming your kids, okay? That's not what I'm doing. I promise we teach them about the Lord. And that's a funny example of shame from something as simple as childhood misbehaviors, but it speaks to how intrinsic and really ingrained, how ingrained shame is in our mindset. And I'm afraid that mindset carries with us through adulthood even. And our gut reaction as humans is to hide that which we don't like about ourselves. And if we're really honest, we want to be seen in the eyes of others to be prim and proper, to be strong or to be beautiful or to be good parents or look wealthy and prosperous or maybe moral or pious and we're always wanting to put our best foot forward like we got it all figured out you know it's that old illustration of throwing all the random junk in your house in the closet before people come over like that's me and Aaron to a T like if y'all come over do not go in the guest bedroom closet it is a dark place I don't know what's in there I don't want y'all knowing what's in there but I'm, I'm kidding I'm sorry Aaron It's a funny illustration, but you hear it so often because it does hold truth. That so often we we push the messiness that's in our heart out of sight, and we suppress what's underneath in our hearts instead of bringing them to the light, which can be an uncomfortable step, and addressing them and finding healing. And we should also realize that different people experience shame for different reasons. There can be several roots of shame, and I think it's helpful that we would unpack some of those To call them what they really are and start to address them in shame church as we know it's not just a struggle for someone who's yet to experience the work of jesus but it's also for those in the church who have been saved who have experienced Jesus' power i've had so many guys in my life that i've walked with and they'll say "I i do love jesus but i struggle with pornography or i can't stop drinking or I have these habits, or I do X, Y, and Z. I love Jesus, but... And they never quite walk in the fullness of what God has for them because their heart remains ridden with shame and with guilt. And I believe shame is one of the enemy's greatest weapons that he'll use against God's people to cause them to turn away and to distance themselves from God's presence and his intimacy with him. Shame could be rooted in a stubborn weakness, Wanting to be something, want to be so good at something or excel in your field or be a good parent or a good son and daughter or a student, but you feel shame that you're not stacking up to expectations. No matter how hard you study for that test, you can't quite hit the mark. Or no matter how hard you want something for a friend or a son or a daughter, they can't quite get it and you feel shame because you feel like you're not good enough and you might not ever be. Shame could come from some humiliating failure or big mistake in our past, some big moment of regret that you can't shake out of your mind, a moment where you really drop the ball, and a moment that's crippled us, that we can't seem to get over, and any time you think it's about to get brought up in a conversation, you shrink back and you want to disappear. Shame could even come from some physical or mental illness that you see as embarrassing, so often, people are stigmatized because they might look different, or they live in a way that's not normal. Here, I think in all the gospel accounts, the people that came up to Jesus, the mute, the deaf, the lame, the blind, the leper, people who were made to be outcast, scorned, scoffed at, left to be objects of shame because of a bodily issue. Shame could have some root in a past horrible event trauma that's scarred your perception of self-worth something you see as somehow being your fault and you think you're actually the reason it happened to you and you don't want to bring it to the light because you're afraid of what people might think or you're afraid they might treat you differently and you're left with shame and I definitely believe one major root of shame for myself and so many others I know is the temptation of comparison our hearts will evaluate ourselves and our lives and pit them against others around us. And we'll look at their lives and say, man, they seem so happy and godly and prosperous or pretty and begin to think we're some B-grade human because we're not like them. We don't have those things. And we're somehow less deserving of God's grace in our lives. And God, this, this list is really heavy. I'm, I'm sorry. But this is real. This one is so real. Real. Last week, um, John preached, and oh my goodness, it was such a good sermon. And you know what my heart was tempted to do? It wanted to compare my sermon to John's sermon. And John's sermon about put my sermon to shame, and I'm preaching on shame, you know? I'm like, ain't no way I can match what John just did. It was so good. And I share that lightheartedly, but it's real. The temptation to compare is real for... In comparison, the enemy will take the good things that God is doing in the lives of others and twist them and deceive us into thinking that we're somehow less loved by God or less affirmed by him or less worthy and we feel shame. I think another way the enemy tempts the church to shame is the, what I've called the expectations of a Christian life. In the church, we can feel shame because we haven't read our Bibles enough or prayed enough or gone to church enough Or we've fallen back into that same sin struggle that we confessed to my accountability partner or my community group, and he messed up big time. And we've become unwilling to be near God and to enjoy him because we believe we haven't held up our end of the deal or that we're not a good Christian and we haven't done enough in our discipleship. And don't hear me say, church, that reading the Bible and praying and those rhythms of discipleship aren't important because they are. But the things that we're called to in Christian discipleship are a whole lot less of I have to and a whole lot more like I get to as God invites us just to have greater joy in Him. So we can't let our shortcomings in these rhythms of discipleship drive us to shame in a way that causes us to have distance or detachment from the Lord But simply letting God's Spirit gently correct us. Perhaps more than all of these though in this list, I really believe the most common root of shame in our hearts and in our minds is our past, our present struggle with sin. It's true that God has placed in all of us a conscience of what is right and what is wrong and he's given us his word that's plain that we could see that, that which accords with his character and that which doesn't. And when we rebel and go against God's good wisdom and his good commands for our lives, we do inherit a deep sense of shame. And we feel the weight of distance that causes between us and we feel separated or alienated We began to think we're unworthy and we began to be fearful that God would see us as we really are. And ultimately, at the root of all sources of shame is sin. It's personal and collective sin that's brought us into this broken world that we know. Not all of these sources of shame are even our fault, but ultimately it's sin that brought the brokenness that brings these about. And ultimately, shame was not present when sin was absent. The Bible affirms this. We'll see. Shame was not present when sin was absent. Genesis chapter 3 describes a moment when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's good direction for them. God had, God had given Adam and Eve clear direction to enjoy all that he had given them and to even subdue it for their good. He gave them the plain commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. But in the rebellion of their hearts... Adam and Eve chose to sin, and they made the choice to eat. In verses 7 through 10 of Genesis chapter 3, show us what happens in response. Genesis chapter 3, 7 through 10 say this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here in the text, we see for the first time in human history the feelings and the effects of shame. Adam and Eve's knee-jerk reaction is to cover themselves with makeshift clothes, choosing not to be revealed. And then we see the Lord walk in the cool of the day just to be near to them, and call out to them. Yet they choose to remain hidden in their shame. They no longer step out in freedom and draw close to him and walk with him like they used to, but they rather distance themselves for the first time. And they're afraid of his judgments, fearful, that they'd see them as they really are now. And we can relate. So often we experience what Adam and Eve experience. That God pulls on the, our heartstrings to want to be near us. He's saying, where are you? Where are you? And he wants to move close to us. But our shame causes us to hide. To conceal our true selves. And we immediately begin to look inwards with the mindset of shame and evaluate that. We're just too sinful to be near God. And questions run through our heads of, doesn't he know what I've done? Doesn't he know I've messed up in this way with drugs or alcohol or made these mistakes with my sexuality or my relationships or some of the hurtful words I've said? And we may even try to cover ourselves with false facades of religiosity or veneer ourselves on the outsides with some good works or a good reputation to try to sedate that sense of shame that lies deep in our hearts. Some people may try to adopt a personality that is big and pompous, while other people may become very timid. Some might become overly domineering, while some might become far too submissive or even codependent. But no matter how we try to compensate, we can never shake this deep sense of shame that separates us from the Lord. And much like Adam and Eve did, Mary experienced a similar fear when approached by the Lord. Remember, she was greatly troubled. And she tried to start discerning what the Lord's nearness could mean. And perhaps she went on wondering, what will Joseph think of me? What will my family think of me? What will those in the synagogue or my friends think of me? How will this be? But recall the angel's response in verse 30 of Luke chapter 1. The angel tells Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found favor. In the original language, that word favor is most literally translated as grace. It's by grace, Mary, that you have been chosen. You have found grace in the eyes of God. It's by grace that you've been sought after. It's a gift you didn't earn It's grace meaning unmerited favor or goodness shown to those who haven't deserved it. Nowhere in scripture is Mary mentioned as specifically righteous or deserving of such a gift as this. But it's only by grace. And it's God's grace that transforms Mary and causes all her fears to be alleviated. It's God's grace and his favor that wipes away the threat of shame and the deceptions of the enemy. And we know this as we read on in the same chapter. We see the transformation in Mary's mind, and great evidence of this freedom from shame later in in the chapter, as she has one of the greatest hymns of praise in all of the New Testament. Many people call uh, Luke chapter one verses forty-six to fifty-five the Magnificat, or Mary's song of praise. And I'll read this hymn that she sings. But notice in the text, church, notice where she puts her emphasis, where her boast is, and even notice where I've added emphasis in the text. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Ten times in these nine verses, Mary proclaims the excellencies of God's grace to her. A singing testimony of what he has done. Again and again, she proclaims, he has, he has, he has. The object of Mary's focus is no longer looking inwardly at her own inadequacies or horror shortcomings, but rather a boast of God's grace saying, he's done it, he's done it. And it's God's grace that relieved Mary from a mindset of shame and blessed her with favor. And it's clear from the response that she has no boast in self, And church, as a matter of fact, for those who have truly experienced God's grace and have been transformed by it, soon after that, there begins to be very little thinking of self altogether. It becomes less and less about us and more and more about Him. And as God draws near to us in His affections as He did with Mary and Adam and Eve, it's by grace we no longer have to hide and conceal our true selves because of shame. We no longer have to fearfully question does he know I'm worthy? Or does he know I've done these things? But instead, it's by grace that we, be, we can proclaim that he has made me worthy. It's because he's done these things. Just like Mary did in her own hymn. God's grace in removing our sin and the devastating effects of shame has been the way of redemption ever since the first moment of shame in the world. We see this in the Genesis text. Genesis chapter 4, verse 21 displays the grace of God to cover the shame of the very first sinners. Verse 21 says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God clothed his people. The false loincloths of fig leaves could not do. It wasn't enough. It took God to graciously step in and to intervene to cover the shame of his people. But notice, it was no longer a loincloth of leaves. It was a garment of skin. One of skin. It took God the sacrifice of innocent life to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Church, this is the great first foreshadowing of the work of Jesus to cover our shame. It took the crucifixion, the death of the Lamb of God who is Jesus to die and shed His blood that you and I could be covered. The man Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, lives a life without sin. One, one with no reason for shame. One so deserving of God's blessing and favor and acceptance and his fellowship. Yet out of love, he chose to bear our shame. Jesus was forsaken that you and I could be accepted. He was disdained that you and I could be given dignity. He was humiliated that we could be given honor. He was stripped bare that you and I could be close. And ultimately, he was hung to a tree on a cross, left there to die that you and I could be forgiven. Christ came to live and to die and to rise again, to reverse the curse of sin and to free us from years of bondage to to shame and its devastating grip on our lives and in all of the relationships around us. It's by this work that makes us new. It's by Jesus' blood that Isaiah could say that your sins are as scarlet. They shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's by Jesus' blood that Zephaniah can say, I will turn your shame into praise and renown in all the earth. It's by Jesus' blood that the psalmist could say, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgression from us. And man, the last time I checked, that's as far as it gets. So church, there is good news for us this Christmas. There is more right in him than wrong in us. There's more forgiveness in him than sin in us. There's so much more grace in him than offense in us. I'm going to invite the band and our prayer volunteers to to come up as I draw, draw to a close. But this Christmas, we know it is God's grace that removes the shame of his people. It's a finished work of Jesus that redeems us and makes us new. Trusting in Christ today looks like an exchange, an exchange of the old garments that we so often put on that are laden with shame and being met with grace and being given the robe of Jesus' righteousness. And church, we know And I know that shame is a dark, dark place to be. And I'll tell you, because I love you, you won't be healed in the dark. Healing is not found in the darkness. Healing is only found in light of God's grace to us. And I think back to that old Christmas song, Mary, did you know? There's a line in it that asks, Mary, did you know? that this child that you'll deliver will soon deliver you. Church, I ask you, do you know? Do you know Jesus offers you a grace today that can wipe away any threat of shame? The deepest bondage you can be set free from. Do you know, church, that Jesus offers you a grace today, that, that sin you've left unconfessed and it's festering in your heart, it's making you sick. He can heal you today. Church, do you know a lifetime of wrong decisions can be made right this morning? He can do it. He can do it. And we can take faith from God's word because if we confess our sins, He is just and He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, I know it because God's word says it, but I know it for my life. For too long, church, I was shackled by my shame due to my sin. But one day in February 2017, God met me with his grace. And Jesus says, Whom the Son sets free, he's free indeed. And man, I know in my heart, he has set me free and he's made me new. And if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. So church, come to the light. God is good, he is gracious, and he is abounding in steadfast love to all those who call upon him. So come into the light. I know it can be an uncomfortable step but would you come out of the darkness and find healing in light of God's grace to you? I love you, church. Thank you for speaking, allowing me to speak to you. Pray with me now. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you that you would save a wretch such as me. I was once like Adam and Eve, just wanted to hide from you. But you covered me. Like in the prodigal son, the father was waiting for me with open arms. And in my shame, I was rehearsing excuses and just wanting to shrink up before you, Lord. But you gave me your best robe and you covered me. You have made me new, Lord. I pray that if there's those that need confession, Father, that need healing, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give them the strength just to come near, to draw near, to come out of hiding, to come out of the darkness in this Christmas, to come into your light and your grace and be healed, Father. In your house, there are many rooms, Father. There's room for all of us this morning. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move even unto salvation for those who would need it. God, thank you for your grace. We love you. We love you. We love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans fifteen thirteen.